Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Techno... Well, actually, live from Denver, Colorado, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That is 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. How are you? I'm doing great, sir. So I have to ask, so this is the second time you and I have both been remote, and uh, I'm just curious, uh, is this working any better this time? I mean, we're talking, and hopefully people are hearing us, so I'm going to give it a thumbs up. There we go. All right, you can join the program, the phone number 855-450-NOAH, or you can email us live at at asknoahshow.com. We'd love to have you joining us. Uh, Steve, should we get into some feedback? Let's do it. Email one comes in from Eddie. Eddie writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. First off, I love the show. I've been listening since episode one. Thank you so much for everything you do for the community. I'm running Pi VPN and on my network with WireGuard to securely access my self-hosted services while away from my house. And myself and the rest of my family all have WireGuard on their devices so that they can do the same. Here's my issue. While I want everyone to be able to access, say, Nextcloud and Jellyfin, there's no need for families' devices to access everything on our network. For example, the router, web interface, etc. Is there a way to block access for some devices connected to the WireGuard server to internal services while allowing them to access others? I notice while each device gets its own WireGuard IP address, they internally they come from the IP of my WireGuard server. I hope this makes sense. Thanks for all the time and looking forward to getting self again this year. Kind regards, Eddie. So, Steve, um, funny enough, I think we did exactly this when I was at your house last. I So what I would do, so there's a couple of things that you could do. The easy answer to this would be setting up a firewall on the, the device that you're connecting into. So presumably the wired guard server, and he gives the IP, uh, is a Linux box of some sort. And so if that's the case, I would probably set up uh, IP tables or NF tables or, or whatever you're comfortable with in order, even uh, even the UFW that comes with Ubuntu, if that's what you're rolling with, uh, would be able to do this. Essentially what happens is when you egress a, a node, so in this case, egress means like the traffic that's leaving the node, Everybody on your network needs to know where to send the packet back to. So what happens is when a packet enters the the WireGuard network, it has its own IP. And so it gets that what's called encapsulated. That IP gets encapsulated into a packet and then sent on. And every time the IP changes along the train, a new IP gets encapsulated along with the old one. So in this case, if I've got a WireGuard IP of like 10.1.1.3 or whatever, that's encapsulated in the first packet. When I try to get to something on my local network, on the 192 network, it then appends that, or I suppose it should say prepends that, so it puts it in the front, 192.whatever that I came from. Why is because when I get to the Nextcloud server 
and it receives traffic and it wants to respond to it, it's not going to know what 10.1.1.3 is, but it will know what 192.168. whatever your host number is. So it sends the traffic back to that host. That host strips off its own IP and then sends it back out the wire guard. Why am I telling you this? Because knowing this, you can actually set up firewall rules on your local host to say that fire like IPs that are originating like this can only egress my host to these addresses. And so it would be a little bit of legwork, but you can definitely do it. What would you do? Uh, exactly that. In fact, so the reason that uh, I, I brought up being at your house is we were sitting there and we were trying to get the kids on a mind test thing. And Steve very wisely says, I don't think we should turn the kids loose on the entire network. We should probably restrict them to just their little land so that they can do all of this. And this is exactly what we did. We created a firewall rule that said, hey, you're dropping all of this traffic. If you're from this place, you can exist here. But if you want to go anywhere else, we just drop you. Um, that's exactly what I would do. Our second email comes in from Baku. Baku. Baku writes in and says, hi there, guys. To be is blatant self-promotion allowed? Always. If yes, I recently created a little tool that helps users in installing some popular proprietary and some popular Libre applications that are not available in the official repository of Ubuntu. All of these applications are sourced from their original upstream projects and not from some random folks on the internet. It also works fine on Debian. Currently, it can install the following applications. Brave Browser, Chrome Browser, Edge Browser, Opera Browser, Vivaldi Browser, I'm sensing a theme here, Spotify, Visual Studio Code, Element, Jami, Signal, Skype, Microsoft Teams, OnlyOffice, and Flatpak. It's called Sorry RMS, and here's the link to the repo. He links to <laughs> github.com slash. Yeah, this is absolutely fantastic. We'll have the link for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Text Mr. also says, or emailer also says, by the way, Noah, I heard you mention that you like Sublime Text on an older episode. Have you tried CUDA Text? It is similar to Sublime, but completely Libre Editor. You might like it. So I tell you what, I have switched from Sublime Text to over to VS Code, and I'm 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 just shy of a fanboy or an addict. I don't like that it's Electron. I feel that constantly, the speed difference and the ability to do things like when I click and scroll, I just expect it to zoom, because that's what happens in every other application known to man, except in VS Codium because it's it's this gigantic web wrap thing. However, what I am most excited for is the text editor that System76 is specifically developing based off of the input they got from people that really like VS Codium. So I will definitely take I will definitely take a look at uh, CUDA or uh, what was it? Yeah, CUDA text uh, and see what I think. But uh, I have to tell you, I'm I'm hedging my bets on System76. Every, when they first launched Pop OS, I was pretty skeptical. Um, and over time, what I've seen is a continual progression towards excellence for the end user. And now they pair that with hardware, and then they you know did a keyboard, and they they continually move that direction. Plus, it's all made here in the U.S., and I'm just I'm happy about that. So I'm wishing them all of the best of luck, and I, I strongly suspect that's that's going to be my my uh, my forever editor once it comes out. Our third email comes in from Daniel. Daniel writes in and says, Hi, guys. I love your show. I've been listening for a year now, not long after I started using Linux, and I have a simple but important question. 
I know Flatpaks, Snap, and App Images are very convenient, but wouldn't it be better to try the default repositories first and try other sources? If the distro version is out of date or if they don't have that particular package. I tend to feel that updating the system with the apps at the same time is safer and easier to manage, and I'm not sure how safe the update mechanisms for the other packages are, or if they even exist. I'm running various distros, mostly Ubuntu-based, and have come very comfortable with Apt. Thanks, Daniel. So, a couple things there. The first thing I would say to that is the whole one of the one of the big reasons that snaps came out in the first place is they were trying to solve the problem of making it easy for developers to get software on their platform and the problem with package managers are you have to you have to push to every different package manager. So if you're on Fedora, you push to this one. If you're on Ubuntu, you push to that one. If you're on SUSE, you push to this one. The idea with Snap, and the same could be said of true of Flatpak or AppImage, I suppose, so you pick one. But the idea of those kinds of systems are as long as SnapD is there, the application is going to run. And so you can have SnapD on Fedora, you can have SnapD on Red Hat, you can have SnapD on Ubuntu, you can have SnapD on Arch, you can have, I mean, any place you can put SnapD, you can put, you can run a Snap package. Now, the advantage of that is when you go talk, when Canonical goes and sits down with the developer and they say, hey, Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Developer, Lady Ma'am Sir, could you push your software over to Linux? Oh, we can't do that. It's very hard. It's very difficult. There's not a prescribed way to do it. It's all, no, 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 no. It's very easy. You push it here. You do this. We've made it really easy. The tooling's very simple, and it pushes up. It's in the Snap Store. Everybody can get to it. Well, what about updates? How do I? That's easy too. You push it to the update store. The Snap will update on its own. Everybody gets the latest version. So you mean to tell me I can control the environment in which my package runs because it's in this little container of sorts? And you're telling me that when I push updates, my users always get the latest version, and I don't have to go through the release manager and all of that that sits there and says, okay, we're shipping the new version of Ubuntu, and so here's the packages we're gonna con- we're gonna ship, and we're putting a concrete date on this, and everything past that uh, we're we're not gonna we're not gonna push out. It has to be this version. You mean I solve that problem? And they say yes, that we solve that problem, and that's huge. So that would be the reason to not. Uh, do not use the apt manager and just use the the snap package or whatever. Uh, Steve, what are your thoughts on on universal packaging? So I'm going to exclude app app images from this analysis, uh, not because I don't like them, but it applies a little less to them. When you're talking about flat packs and snaps, one of the benefits that you get is some inherent security because they are doing a lot to sandbox. Okay, for the people furiously typing out there, I know that you can install like the classic version of a snap or you can use uh, flat seal to break out of the sandbox. You can do those things. But in general, one of the things that this brings is some added security because of the way that they make sure that these packages are self-contained. One of the other advantages is that oftentimes packages may have some very specific dependencies. So I'll give you a really good example. I I use a a tool every day in my job called uh, OpenBoard. It has a dependency on a system level uh, library. And when that library rolls over, I have to recompile the program because it will no longer launch. It basically just, it wants exactly what it was compiled against and that's it which is kind of problematic because if I forgot that I did an update and I didn't go and recompile the software because it's it's only distributed in its source like that, then I end up launching a session with my client like, oh, hold on a second, I got to recompile some software. Um, Whereas when I switch to the Flatpak version of that, that goes away because essentially Flatpak, Snaps, and app, App Images 
bundle all of their dependencies together in a blob and just plunk a blob on your system and that's it. It lives in that side of that little directory and it doesn't need to have any external dependencies on your system, which means if you remove it, you're not going to worry about breaking anything else, which I have absolutely done in the past. So there's some advantages. I also like the I like the built-in package managers because like you said, the idea of I run apt update or dist upgrade or whatever it is that I'm going to work through and everything gets taken care of. That's true. And I like that. And there are times where on the systems that we run, the AUR is out of sync with the system updates because I don't think to run the AUR updates. I just do the system ones. And so it's the same thing that you'd be dealing with there. So there are pluses and minuses for sure. Absolutely. So it, it just... Uh... Straight up, if you had to choose between the package distro maintainer and, let's say, Flatpak, what would you go with? Hmm, tough call. I Generally, I, I default to the package maintainer unless I have a specific reason uh, not to. Okay. Uh, again, one eight fifty five four fifty Noah. It's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow dot com. Text. Uh, and I, I, I guess I'll, I guess I would add. I kind of do the same thing. I'm trying to force myself to use Snap or Flatpak a little bit more because of all the reasons that Steve just outlined in the way of security and stuff. There is something in my head, though, that just says I never, ever seem to have problems with the applications that are installed from the package repo. Every once in a while, I have like weird theming issues and stuff like that. But I think long term, we're going to get there. Our fourth email comes in from Aaron. Aaron says, hi there. I got to say, I'm a longtime listener and I love your show. I watched episode 327 where you talked about transcription and dictation software on Linux in regard to transcribing it into a PDF. Have you ever checked out Nerd Dictation? I think that's the right flags that might work for them as well as the text that you have in any field, including LibreOffice, and just save it as a PDF. And he links to an open source project on GitHub. He says, I don't know if this will help, but just thought I'd mention it. Keep up the great work. I've said this I don't know, a thousand times on this program, and I'll probably say it 10,000 times more before I'm done with this program. The best part of coming to a community to ask questions is if I don't know the answer, if Steve doesn't know the answer, there's somebody sitting there right now listening to this going, I have the answer. I know how to help you. And they will. Again, 855 450 no, it's 1-855-450-6624. Uh, the email live at com. Let's head over to the Linux Newswire newsroom, find out what's happening with JT. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of March 12, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. Curl is turning 25, and there's an online birthday party in the works. The Together Company has released the first open source chat GPT alternative called Open Chat Kit. The Together team believes that open source models have the potential to be more democratic, open, strong, and adaptive. And so they have released their 20 billion parameter model, OpenChatKit 0.15, under the Apache 2.0 license, making the code, model weights, and training datasets freely available to the public. Bluestar Linux, a German distro based on Arch Linux, has released version 6.2.5 and is out with KDE 5.27.2. Linux 6.4 is set to remove the older config options that were used for running newer versions of the Linux kernel with very old distributions and user space tools. Pre-2007-2008 distributions will likely run into trouble trying to run the latest 6.4 and newer kernels. Digicam 7.10 is out, and the Samba team has released version 4.18 with several security updates and improvements. LibreELEC 11 is now available for download and ships with the latest Kodi 20 and has support for NVIDIA GPUs. 
Audacious 4.3 has been released and adds a Pipewire plugin, native Opus decoder, and more. The GNOME 44 release candidate has been released, and it is the last test version. And in other desktops, KDE has announced the release of KDE Frameworks 5.104. IBM has contributed two open source projects, SBOM Utility and License Scanner, to the Open Web Application Security Project. And in security news, according to the cybersecurity startup GitGuardian, out of the over 1 billion lines of source code they have analyzed, they claim that one in every 10 has held credentials. They believe that the solution is for the open source development market to be regulated. As part of the latest Kali Linux releases, the Kali Linux team has also announced a new project called Kali Purple, a distro designed for defensive security. And the IceFire ransomware has changed up its OS target in recent cyber attacks which is another sign of ransomware actors increasingly targeting Linux enterprise networks, despite the extra work involved. If you work in an organization of almost any size, you deal with dynamic critical incidents, things that happen that you didn't expect to happen and you're thinking in the moment. And as technical people, we're often held to unrealistic standards. So this is something that Steve has done a tremendous amount of research in. And so we wanted to dig into it, into the program. So, um, Steve, I want to start with this. Can you explain what uh, uh, mechanistic reasoning is and why that isn't necessarily the right approach after you've dealt with a failure, after something hasn't worked, and you sit down and say to yourself, let's figure out why. Maybe we figured out what the root cause is, maybe we haven't, but we're looking for error prevention, we're looking for problem prevention. What is mechanistic reasoning and why is it maybe not appropriate here? Oh, and you know what? It turns out when I hit the wrong button, it makes Steve not be able to talk. So we'll not hit that button. Let me ask you a question again. Now try, Steve. Can you hear me now? I can. Five by five. Perfect. Uh, so mechanistic reasoning is this idea that computers and more broadly automation are always the answer to a solution. So when you run into a problem, the immediate go-to answer is always like we need to automate or we need more computers. Like automated driving so when the when the automated cars from wherever you know uber lyft google wherever it is tesla when they have a problem the first thing we say is we got to throw more automation at it or we need more compute power or whatever that's what mechanistic reasoning is it's not always the case that that is what you should be doing especially when you're talking about problem prevention i know that makes a lot of people start banging on their keyboard like well automation is the way to self-healing and all the rest of that sort of stuff i'm not convinced that it is overall automation is still built by a human and at the end of the day there's no difference between the human that builds the automation and the human that maybe uh, have caused the error in terms of they're both as fallible why is it that the person who makes an automation is automatically infallible, but the person who spends day in and day out working in the, the guts of a system is more likely to be error prone. I, I don't buy it. Can you, can you talk about what the overall goal is with pro, with problem prevention? When we sit down in a meeting and we said, hey, we had a failure, we want to figure out like why we had this failure what how do we deal with that and 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 what is the what should be the overall goal that companies should be looking for when they're dealing with problem prevention 
So this is a little bit of a bigger answer than than I think you're anticipating. So this comes from the the methodology site reliability engineering. And in SRE, your entire focus is on the end user, your customer, whoever that is, not on the systems themselves. So because of that, in the past, we used to do alerting and we, we really cared about the causes, like the CPU spike or the we've, we're burning on memory or, or whatever it is. But in, in the SRE mentality, you actually care about symptoms because the symptoms are what are going to be impacting the end user. Like, is the, is the symptom that the page doesn't load? Is it, you know, a slow response time? These are the things that make your, your end users unhappy. And so you should be alerting on those sorts of things instead of the causes. As tech professionals, you care about the cause, but what you're trying to do is you're trying to prevent those symptoms from occurring. So you, you want to really hone in on symptoms at the end of the day. We want to solve the causes of these of the problem, obviously, but as a part of where your focus should be, you should be focusing on the symptoms because that is, at the end of the day, as an end user, I don't care if your CPU is burning at 90%. Like you're, you got 90% CPU load, I don't care. I don't even know that. I do know that I had to click refresh five times to book my hotel tonight, and that kind of annoyed me. <laughs> Can you talk, to bring it kind of into a real-world example, can you talk about what happened at Los Alamos National Lab and what are some of the takeaway lessons that we can learn from it? All right, so let, let's try and tie this in. So I'll give you a little bit about Los, Alam, uh, Los Alamos National Lab, and then we'll try and tie it back in together. So bear with me here. So the, this national lab de dealt with, and I believe they still do deal with, uh, a lot of research around uh, nuclear facilities, as well as some, there is some nuclear weapons research that goes on. This is not classified information. It's obviously a secured site and all the rest of that. Um, in the last several years, so I'd say going back to 2005 and forward, they've had several incidences where hard drives have disappeared for some reason or another. And so that is what we started to look at. So people started to look at, well, why are the hard drives disappearing? And then strangely enough, the hard drives would reappear. And that was even more strange. And so when they started to investigate, there was, they did a wide scan of the entire facility. They sent the dogs in and all that sort of stuff. They're looking everywhere. And they swear they've checked everywhere three or four times. And on the fifth pass, they find this hard drive, this missing hard drive, behind a photocopier in a very well-trafficked area. Just That is there. where I store my hard drives. <laughs> right? Um, and so from that, they're like, well, well, we've obviously checked everything. Where did this come from? What does this have to do with what we just talked about, error prevention? So one of the things that they were really struggling with was all of the processes that were put in place were, were burning out people. And instead of helping to ease the issues by either providing more manpower or looking at the the regulations that they had to follow and then simply adjusting their timelines they didn't do that they kept the same timelines and kept the kept the pressure on their people and after they called in an external auditor what they found was that 
the hard drives went walking, not because of maliciousness, but because there had been a culture built up of having to skirt the rules in order to get their job actually complete on time. So people would, instead of waiting for the secure file transfer to happen, people would literally just lift the hard drive up and take it to wherever they needed it to go in order to process it. And they'd eventually put it back. But from time to time, that either happened late or somebody like it was it triggered some alarm or something like that. And so your goal here is to alleviate the symptom. The symptom is uh, we have an overworked, like an overstressed workforce, right? And and we we determine that because we've got this hard drive that went walking. The cause of that is, you know, whatever. It's lack of manpower. It's onerous. All all the rest of those sorts of things. So in in Los Alamos, they didn't have this happen once or twice or three times. They've had it happen four times in, I want to say, a decade. So it's one of those things where in in real life we looked at this and and we said, you know what, we need to make this better. And and how do we prevent this problem? Well, we're going to prevent this problem by addressing all of these symptoms of the peop. The symptoms are people are burnt out and all of that sort of stuff. And they they needed to address it that way. So when people make mistakes, because certainly you're not saying don't hold people accountable for mistakes, don't just overlook those things. So how do you deal with human error? And why? Why should we deal with human error? Well, human error happens, like I kind of alluded to before, where it it doesn't matter. At some point, a human is involved, even if you you know go off the deep end and say, well, ChatGPT or some other AI is going to do all the things. Well, at some point, human error was involved. And when bugs are found or whatever, you have to squash them. When you're specifically talking about, um, you know, how do we deal with problems in our environment? They're all Honestly, they're all caused by humans at some point, because even if the automation itself failed, that was a human failure. So you most of the time, people are not actually trying to be incompetent when they make an error. They're they're making a good faith effort to execute on their job properly. Right. Uh, And people want some level of accountability. You're not you're not simply saying, well, you just get off the hook. People want to know that there is some level of of discourse that will happen if, say, that it's usually directed at the colleague. If we're honest, we want our colleagues to be held accountable, not really us. But we want to know when they screw up that that there's going to be some sort of consequence there. And so part of what we're talking about is you people want to be recognized for doing their job, right? And part of recognition comes from accountability, right? You get recognized because you had a giant task and you completed that task and that task was yours and there's that recognition. So there is a positive aspect to this. And they want to make sure that things are perceived as being fair. But at the same time, when you're dealing with human error, you don't want to just nail the person to the floor. So one of the things that I, I, I preach to my clients is, Let's say you have a documentation problem. Okay, it's you executing on the keyboard and you're, you're just like, it's 3 a.m. and you're just pounding on the keyboard exactly as what was written before and there's an error in the documentation. You cause an outage and now the, you know, your postmortem shows that the problem was that Steve mistyped something and that took out whatevers. 
pinning that on Steve doesn't do anything for the rest of your environment, right? It, you could fire me because I was the one that typed the thing, but ultimately what you're looking to do is prevent that in the future. You want to find out, oh, it was a problem with the documentation because you could have swapped me for Noah. And if Noah is following the documentation that I did, he could have easily made the same mistake. So mm, it's systemic over exactly. Right. And so uh, when you're dealing with human error, you don't want to pin the person to the wall, but actually get to the point of, well, what caused the error? Why are we making this? Why did this error happen? How do we make sure that it doesn't happen again? And we don't assume that the person making the error was actually the error itself. I don't think any industry has probably done as much research into human uh, behavior, human studies as the aviation industry. And we can take a lot of, you know, a lot of lessons out of what pilots do. It's, it's funny to me. Every time there's a plane crash, it seems like pilot error is always a contributing factor. It's like, it can literally be like, well, the wing fell off. And so that's why the plane crashed. So was, the, the reason for the crash is pilot error with a contributing factor of a loss of a wing. It's like, what? But, but but we can look at some of those situations and we can take lessons out that can be applied in the IT realm. So can you talk a little bit about pilot error and what happens when people are in unfamiliar uh, environments and how that relates to human error? So how I stumbled across this was I actually stumbled across a, a fairly large study where they were trying to assess what um, whether or not pilot error is influenced by things like your seniority, how much time you spend in the cockpit, how much time you've practiced and all the rest of that sort of stuff. So this project that I came across was actually looking at uh, 650 pilot errors. And what they found was that pilots were actually, who are under pressure, doesn't matter your experience level, you fall back to your instincts. And what was happening was that a lot of times errors were happening because the environment was different from what they expected. So the, in a cockpit, if you haven't ever seen them, there are tons of toggle switches all over the place. It's essentially like floor to ceiling toggle switches all over the place. And you often have, you know, two or three or four pilots, depending on the duration of the flight and how big the, the aircraft is. And what they found was that that when mistakes were happening, it was because the pilots were reaching for for something and they flicked the wrong switch because they were expecting something to be there that wasn't there. And it didn't matter whether uh, whether or not it was a different airplane. Like it wasn't because they were flying a 747 and they moved to a 757 or anything like that. There's a certain flow that the instinct wants to have once once you've had some familiarity with a task. And I think we've all had that. Like if you if you took a standard keyboard and then swapped it out for like the Dvorak keyboard, how, how many people are just going to rely on instinct and just be mashing the buttons because it's not where they expected it to be? It's the same thing with the pilots. And so the when when the they first started looking at, at all of these errors, the initial assumption was, oh, well, these people just need more experience. Obviously, they just didn't spend enough time in the cockpit or whatever. But when they concluded this, this this giant study, which took them a long time, they found there was actually no statistical significance in the difference between people who were relatively green and who people who were well-seasoned. And so from that, they took away that really the tooling needs to conform to the expectations of the users 
instead of the users adapting to the tooling. And, and that, that was kind of a really interesting uh, shift in the aviation industry. You referenced earlier, it doesn't do any good to fire Steve. Like, you can fire Steve because you were the one that clicked the wrong button. Um, but that, that idea of backwards accountability isn't really productive or, or particularly useful. Can you talk a little bit about what backwards accountability is and how it can be detrimental to incident management? And then if I could add on a Part B, it would be, how would you use instead forward accountability to manage incident response? So the easiest way to understand backwards accountability is how it's how our society works in general that's how the law works we hit we commit an action and then you have like you prove the action and then put the blame on someone so i stole a thing i i was proven i stole a thing you go to jail that's that is backwards accountability where you you're working backwards from this was the incident now i'm going to enact a punishment i'm going to walk backwards until i enact enact some sort of punishment that's where the idea of backwards accountability is you're punishing something that happened in the past going backwards forward accountability is okay you made a mistake how are you going to make sure that we don't do this in the future not how are you not going to do it again but you are now responsible for your teammates so you better document this well enough so that they don't do it again that's what forward accountability is in society, that's not necessarily going to work very well. But when you're talking about uh, responding to incidences, or and we can think about surgeons, you can think about firefighters, you can think about pretty much any EMS, that's what their goal is. Their goal is not to fire the, the, the well-trained staff, but to make sure that, that the staff that they have doesn't fall into the same pitfalls again. So this is why it's incident, why it's useful inside of incident response is because at the end of the day, if you fire all of the people that make mistakes, you're going to be left with a bunch of greenhorns and you're just going to have like a rotating door, like the revolving door is always going to happen. Instead, you want to make sure that whatever stumbling blocks ended up leading to that problem end up being removed from your environment so that you smooth that out and you, you have a better chance of retaining talent and, and maintaining your uptime and all the rest of that. So, you know, I think sometimes us technical people are, we're almost seen as like gods. We're supposed to, we're supposed to account for everything. We're supposed to think to everything. We're supposed to know everything. We're supposed to anticipate everything. Can you talk a little bit about maybe why it's problematic to expect technical people to understand and account for all of the variables when making decisions during a dynamic critical incident? So I want to step back a little bit and say, okay, the, the root of this caught problem comes from language that we use. So if we say such and such a person failed, as opposed to made a mistake, failure implies that you knew the right path and you could have gone down the right path, you just didn't. And so what we see in a lot of um, technical environments is this, uh, so, so-and-so like operator failed to do this, operator failed to do that. Uh, where there are so many things that are flying around in the middle of an incident that it's really hard for someone to assess on the fly all of the possible decision points that you might have to make. So it's kind of like you're standing at a, an intersection, but this intersection is like a 20-way intersection. And you're just standing there and you're expected to know 
which road you're supposed to take at that exact second to get to to where you're going. And if you didn't take that road, you failed. That's where the root of this question kind of comes in. When you're working in, in a dynamic environment, especially, you know, things are down, the pressure's on, you know, this applies to any anybody who's in a situation where people are putting a lot of heat on you to react quickly. You you can never know all of the variables. You, you, there's no way for you to be able to determine all of the outcomes. One of the things when I'm when I'm giving this talk in front of like clients or other people, I kind of talk about baseball, right? And you think, well, that's kind of a weird segment. Hang in there with me. We'll get there. So when you're thinking about catching a fly ball, the batter hits, like the, the pitcher throws the ball, the batter hits it, and the person in the outfield has to, you know, as they say in the game, get on their horse to go get the ball. So they have to they have to run to go get the ball. And when you're saying, well, why didn't you know? How did you miss it? All the rest of that. The implication there is that someone is going to sit down and pull out their trigonometry and uh, figure out the trigonometry related to the the uh, path of the ball. And so there's all kinds of stuff that you need to know. And I throw up this big complicated uh, calculation for the people to say, like, this is what they expect you to do if you know all of the variables. But the most high-performing people don't even think about that. They work on instinct. And so instead of trying to figure out what, what the speed of the ball was or, or how far what was the what was the arc of the ball and how what was your exact distance from the batter and all that sort of stuff what they do is they run based on their perception of where the ball is and i i play this little video clip of an outfielder running all the way to center field and he looks up and then he he looks forward so he doesn't run into things he's up forward up forward and he's he's kind of zigzagging across the field instead of taking a direct route he ends up catching the ball but running into the he runs into the wall as as he's making the catch. And it's one of those things where he's applauded for making that, even though he kind of takes that zigzaggy route. And that's kind of what you're doing when you are dealing with an incident. You don't ha have a clear picture most of the time of, I'm here, I know I need to get to this point. It's, I'm gonna, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm gonna try this thing, I'm gonna look, I'm gonna try that thing and make a course correction. You're doing all of these sorts of things. And so you can't really know all of the variables and and stop and evaluate it. It's a constant reevaluation of I do a thing. What was the reaction? How do I then respond to that thing? Can you talk a little bit about what might be some practical steps at the onset of a critical incident? So you know somebody you know Bob just RM tack RS tack tack no preserved the entire root direct directory, and now we have a system that that is totally hosed. What are some practical steps we should be taking at the onset of that? So hopefully you have good alerts and that will that will have your back. A good alert, when you have a well-defined alert, you have a summary of the issue. You've got the project or the environment where the issue is occurring. You have the condition that is currently happening. So in this case, you would see like the database would be empty or something like that. You'd have the threshold for which triggered the alert. You have what metrics are used, like how how do I know that this alert is valid? You have a link to documentation to help you start troubleshooting. You have next steps, and you also have an escalation path. Hopefully you have all that in your alert. If you have all that in your alert, there are a bunch of 
processes that you can kick off. So first of all, uh, if you're dealing with a database dump like that, where you've deleted the database, you probably want to immediately call the escalation to get hands on and active on it. Um, the the process and the initial decisions that you're making really depend upon whether did you catch the did you catch it did somebody page you like because sometimes we've I've I've done this I've absolutely caused an an issue that I didn't realize until somebody paged me um, and so your response when you're getting paged is something completely different than you you realized you made a mistake hopefully if you deleted the database you you know you realized you made the mistake. Um, so it's, it's kind of hard to, to lay down exact practical steps. If you've got bad alerts, ultimately your alerts are supposed to be the, that first, um, that first catch of all of the problems so that you can take a breather and you have, you don't, you don't panic about what am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to call? Where did this happen? You know, all that information is fed into you, hopefully. What, you know, there's there's going to be somebody out there and they're listening to this and they're like, okay, I got it. I understand. I know how to put all these things in and I'll make sure I'm using forward accountability and all of the things. And they're likely not thinking about the human aspect here and the factors that play into that. So can you talk a little bit about the people angle and what factors play into people's decision-making processes? Why do people do the things they do? So there are, obviously, there's a myriad of ways to classify people and their personalities and stuff like that. When we're talking about uh, specific critical situations like this, we tend to use the scale of there are people who have risk aversion, there are people who have temporal discounting, there are people who have who uh, fall very heavily in, in what's called the certainty effect, and there are people that make decisions based on keeping your options open. So let me break some of those down for you. The the risk aversion person that one's probably self-explanatory. I don't want to do this if it's going to cause more problems. That's what they're, the risk aversion person is doing. Um, <clears throat> when you've got something like the certainty effect, these are the people that are not willing to gamble regardless. So for example, if you have a 10% chance of winning $1,000, but a 10% chance of losing $400, these people that are interested in the certainty effect, they're just not going to make a decision. So they're kind of going to be paralyzed in that that spot because they're 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 just not going to work in that way. If you've got something like temporal discounting, these are the this is the idea that most people are going to take fifty dollars now rather than taking a hundred dollars later. And this is the reason why it's important to understand these these types of personalities is because that will help you understand why they make the decisions they do. So like I'm banging away on the keyboard. I know something's down. I could possibly run this command, but it could make things worse. If I'm a risk averse person, I'm not going to do that. If I'm a keep my options open kind of person, I might evaluate that and say, if I do this, is this going to prevent me from doing something else? No. Okay. I'll give it a shot. So the people that like to keep their options open and that's me, I will paint myself into a corner because I am trying to keep all my options on the table. I'm I'm not risk averse. I definitely don't fall into the that idea of like I'm going to take fifty dollars now as opposed to something better later. And I'm also I'm I'm somewhat inclined to the idea that the certainty effect where um, I'm more likely. So if I was trying to make the certainty effect a better um, 
a better explanation someone might explain understand. Uh, the certainty effect is where people are more likely to pick a car based on the color as opposed to some feature that you may want to have in the future. So I, I'd rather have a blue car than one with towing power that I might need in the future. That's, that's the certainty effect, which is a silly way to, to make a decision if you think about it logically, because you could just change the color of the truck and get it painted. But that's kind of the certainty effect. I, I touch on that, like I'm, my personality is a little bit in that way, but I'm definitely one of those people that are going to make a choice based on how many options I can keep on the table. Yeah. How about when you're making, a, a, when you're going through the decision-making process, what factors do you need to maybe avoid, things to stay away from? So there's there are several, um, there's, again, four classifications. I guess we, we really like fours when, when we're evaluating this sort of stuff. So the four types are status quo. So there's a status quo bias. There's an omission bias. There's anticipated regret. And then there's a reactance bias. So the status quo bias, that one sounds kind of self-explanatory. You don't like options because of unknown impacts. So I'm not going to do anything because I'd rather just like not damage anything than uh, ca like cause some sort of change in the environment. That's what the status quo person does. The omission bias says that I'm more likely to um, leave the the receive span. Okay, so like when if you've if you've ever signed up for something and they have they have those opt in check marks, the opt the omission bias is the person that's more likely to leave the like the receive emails button checked rather than to read through and find the option. So they're they're more likely to kind of scan things and just leave leave things alone as opposed to go, going to start and uncheck a bunch of things. So that's what the omission bias is. The the anticipated regret and this is this is me for sure. This is the option that might make you regret something in the future, so I'm going to avoid that. So I'm I'm long term thinking like, hmm, is this going to come back and bite me? That is how I'm I am making uh my decision on what I should avoid or not. And then you've got the reactance bias, which is when um, these people drive me crazy, the reactance bias. They are the people that are like, I'm going to pick anything except that option that you've put forward. So you're like, hey, I want to go restart the server. And they come up with 50,000 other things with no real backing just because they want to do everything except the thing that you've actually asked to do. How about uh, the term counterfactuals? What is a counterfactual and how do we use them to avoid mistakes? Hmm. Uh, counterfactual, essentially, you want, they are, hmm. counterfactuals are a byproduct of hindsight. What does this mean? It means that uh, it makes assumptions based on your current knowledge. So a counterfactual would be something like, um, I knew I knew that this I flipped this switch and the server crashed and therefore you shouldn't have flipped that switch. Well, I didn't know that at the time. So here's a here's a really easy example. Um, 
if you've and I've I've had this before. You you have some sort of weird electrical setup that you have had in your house, and you go downstairs to your breaker box, and you you flip a breaker that should be an Aquas, but it turns out that some plug somewhere is on the same breaker, and it's not labeled. And so then, someone comes downstairs screaming, saying, "You shouldn't have set off the power because now such and such a thing is broken. You should have known that." Well, that's a counterfactual because you didn't know that flipping that breaker that was unlabeled, like that had an unlabeled attachment, was going to cause a problem somewhere else. Mm. That's so a it's counterfactual. A, it's a false premise. It is a false premise. It's using what you know now to condemn something that you did in the past, where there was not not necessarily any way that you would know the outcome of that result. Does that Can make you talk sense? A- it does. It does. Could you talk a little bit about the opt model and what it is and how it's useful? So, yeah, the opt model is essentially the way it's it's a Venn diagram. For people that don't know, that's that's essentially like three circles that represent different ideas. And in case in this case, the opt model is it stands for organization, passion, and talent. And the the things that you want people to be doing are the intersection of all three so wherever they wherever they land in that skew it's it's really hard without a concrete um example let me let me see if i can think of one unless you've got one right off the top of your head but i um, i don't so i guess the idea here is you're trying to find a blend of different skills that you have and the best fit and where you're going to be the most successful is where your passion, your talent and the organization where you're working for or the goal that you are heading towards, if you want to put it that way, all align. So if if I think about, OK, well, I'll think I'll, I'll bring this back to myself. Um, one of the things, so I I really care about doing good documentation because it drives me crazy if I sat down to figure something out and then I didn't do good enough documentation for myself to figure that out again. I also have some level of talent at providing information to people in a way that is understandable to them. Despite how it may seem when I babble along on the air, I'm actually fairly proficient at giving good instructions. And then I have, I'll use Red Hat as my organization. Red Hat has a need to make sure that people are doing what is actually well suited to them. So they're continuing to, like a developer is going to develop, they need that documentation and in order to move forward on a project. Like that's, Red Hat cares about, do I have people who are able to use the thing that I'm producing? And so my optimal frame is my ability to digest information and then put it in some a way that Noah can understand, as well as my passion for for writing documentation, as well as, yeah, you know what, Red Hat really is interested on some level of having good documentation. And so so the opt model is the intersection of all of those things. And the, the idea here is that I'm going to get good recognition at work because I'm doing something work cares about. I'm going to do a good job because it's something that I'm passionate about. And I also have some level of skill. And so that's, that's what the opt model is, is trying to align yourself with passion and skill uh, and what your organization is trying to drive towards. Do you see that working out well for organizations? 
I think that Red Hat does it exceptionally well. I think that uh, I don't have much experience outside of Red Hat where people have actually tried to implement this, but for Red Hat, it works really well. Fantastic. So we could obviously, we could spend a lot of time on this. Um, let us know what you think. Live at AskNoahShow.com. Is this helpful to you? I know for myself, as I step through things at UltaSpeed, this is the kind of information that as I, as you know, I wish I knew this stuff 10 years ago when I started UltaSpeed because having a defined process for problem resolution and not just problem resolution, but a plan going forward on how to structure things so that we don't have problems in the first place is a really constructive, healthy way to look at things. So if you like the content you're hearing, um, we would love to do more of, of this sort of stuff, but we want to hear from you live at AskNoahShow.com. Tell me something you found particularly useful. Give me a question, maybe a follow-up question that you had to something that, that Steve said, and we'll try to address it on a future episode. I want to take a couple moments to thank everyone who came out to scale. It was an absolute blast. It was so great to be back in person with everyone, see familiar faces. We are going to have our coverage of scale next week. It'll be on the Air 321, so come back and join us for that next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. I had an opportunity to see a lot of familiar faces. You know, one of the great things about Scale is it's a lot of the big names that you, the projects you use every day, uh, day in and day out. They they come to Scale, and you have an opportunity to meet the people behind them and find out what they're up to and get a look at what's coming down the road. But the other thing that I noticed was in being there, it took a turn insofar as there were organizations that I'd never heard of before. And when I would say, I've never heard, that's a really cool product or that's a really cool service. I can't believe that you guys are are doing that. Their answer to me was, well, it makes sense that you would never heard of us because we've only existed for two months or two years or something like that. So a lot has changed in the technology landscape since the last time that uh, conferences were, were widespread. And so we're excited to bring you that coverage. That'll happen next week. Again, on March 21st. I want to thank you for joining us. We record this show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. We do it live, and you're welcome to join the show in our interactive mumble room or call in. Uh, send us your emails at live at asknoahshow.com. We'll be back next week. Uh, you can get all of the show notes, all of the resources that we use on the show are available at podcast.asknoahshow.com. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter, at Ask Noah Show. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. And we will be back next week. 